Hey everybody, it's Kendall from Recording Lounge, and today we're going to talk with Garrett Haynes, Chief Mastering Engineer over at Tree Lady Studios. And uh, I can tell you this, Garrett knows his stuff about mastering. Um, so I'm really excited for you guys to hear what he has to say about mastering. Mastering seems to be sort of this sort of like uh, dark art, no one really knows what goes on. It's like a little EQ and compression, or is there more than that? You know, all that. I mean, it's sort of this confusing area and a lot of people think oh, I'll just do it myself or a lot of guys don't do mastering on their own stuff at all and uh, a lot of bands don't find it as a necessary expense when you know budgets are low and all that but I can tell you from experience mastering is so important it really really is important and it's more than just gear okay so this is part one of a two-part interview Garrett was so kind to talk to us for about two hours about a lot of different topics. So this is part one of two. I'll be releasing part two soon. Enjoy. Okay, so Garrett, point blank, what is mastering? I mean, if you had to describe mastering in just a simple way, what is it to you? What does it really do for music? Um, well, making a record is like any other endeavor, whether it's building a submarine, building a skyscraper, baking a cake. There are steps you go through. There's pre-production where you decide what you're going to record, etc. You're going to have a producer where you're going to record, etc. Then there's the actual tracking where you record the individual elements either together or overdubbed or whatever. And then there's the whole editing and mixing phase where someone works just so hard it seems these days with the, the digital stations. Sure. Uh, and then the next stage is mastering and then after that, it goes to duplication and distribution. Mastering is the section that is the bridge between the creative part of making the album and mixing it and putting the final frame and polish on the songs. And then the second half of my job is the technical and boring stuff of if someone is going to iTunes, to CD, to cassette i get a lot of cassettes even vinyl they all have different physical formats and considerations and so the different things i have to do depends on where the artist is sending or distributing the audio but the creative part of what i do deals with when the mix person works on the album it may have been done over a long period of time it may have been done over different studios different atmospheric pressure, humidity. It actually affects, you know, wooden instruments. And then um, made of, might have been done with different players. So it's very difficult for a mix person to give you a record that sounds like a band walked in to a room and a CD popped out of the wall. So one sure. of the, the things the mastering person does, there are several things we do, but one, if I was talking to somebody on the street, um, you know, it would be that I make, I create the illusion that that band walked in and 40 and played straight up and the album popped out of the wall. And interesting. If, yeah. So, you know, other things I do are there's repair work. Sometimes there are lots of other things I do, but you know, I'm at a holiday party and my family wants to know what I do, which is a very tough question when you're in audio. Because they don't uh, understand what we do. They think a band just walks in, plays the song, and a record's done in an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because a lot of people, you know, that aren't into music or recording at all, they really don't even understand how much equipment... I mean, they don't even understand what it is, you know? I mean, they're like, so, you know, you can make it on your MacBook now, right? Right, or your phone. And it's like, well, 
you can make a you know you can make a record on a MacBook and you you can make a record on your phone, but it's probably not what happened. <laughs> no, and you um, know, record there are still big record companies out there, and they still work with big artists, and they don't want to spend money on anything. But the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is, it takes them a year to make a record, and they all have them mastered and spend money on it. And it's you have people that don't like spending money. And they still take a year to make a record, and they still always have it mastered. It tells you how important it is with people that don't want to release their money. So um, you can also tell people, pick up a CD off the shelf and show me one that hasn't been mastered. And um, even if there's no credit, it probably was mastered. And the other thing I tell people, layman people, is, you know, a while, depending on how old the, the person I'm talking to is, uh, the mastering engineer used to be the person who actually just transferred the the mixes to the lacquer for the cutting for the for the vinyl. Or, sure. And the thing was, when it started, the band probably did play live to one or two microphones. And so the the blend engineer or the mix engineer had to mix live. And so the master it was plausible at that point for the mastering engineer to master on the fly to the vinyl. That's why there was that two second thing because they would switch between songs. Um, but as the multi-track process came about where we could record things at different times and layer things and have seven of one person singing their own backup parts, it gets to the point where the mixing got longer and then the mastering needed its own separate phase. And, and as our formats change, like right now, like I said, I, I deal with more formats than I've ever dealt with in my life. I deal with cassette, uh, CDs, uh, mostly vinyl these days, and obviously iTunes or other digital formats. So, so basically, yeah. yeah. What I do is I'm that polished guy that makes that illusion. That's what I tell people who really don't want to talk f- for an hour about what we do behind the curtain. Sure. Well, so, what is the most important thing then in this in the new age? Since we have so many formats and we have all these different thousands of ways to make a record. Right. I mean, you know, what is the most important part for other people to know about getting a good master? You have to like the mixes and the songs before you send them off. We can only polish or repair so far. Mm-hmm. And so if you like your mixes, then I can polish them. And if you have a an A mix or a B plus mix, I can try to pull it up to an A plus. But I also, I get, I get a, at least half of my clients are people that it might be the only record they record. And they've probably been reading recording magazines for years and they recorded it at their house. And they may have taken three years to record and mix it. They're at the end of their rope because they don't actually do it as a, as a professional studio. And they need me to add, add all kinds of things or make things less digital sounding or whatever. So I do yeah. that. But the best, the most important thing is that you like your mixes. If you don't like your mixes, there's only so much um, the mastering person, regardless if it's me or Bob Ludwig, there's only so much we can do. So you've got to like your mixes or at least be satisfied with them. Sure. Um, As you know, there are people that are never, they're tweaking mixes for 10 years and they'll never finish a record. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think sometimes people think the mastering is like this silver bullet that, you know, oh yeah, it's going to make it so much better and you know it sure it can but if the mix is you know a c it 
can only make it because I, I feel like it's almost and you can you know correct me if I'm wrong but I feel like it's almost it's not linear it's not like if you have an A mix mastering can make it an A plus but that doesn't mean if you have a C mix you can make it an A plus right and mastering can also ruin an A mix if the person exactly yeah uh, if if the mastering engineer isn't in line with what the artist wants and but there are two types of mastering engineer there's the one that they have a sonic signature and you hire them to do their thing those are yeah. people that don't you don't get a lot of revisions with them they, you just pay a flat fee boom here's what i'm doing and you get it back very hard to get them to make adjustments maybe you know but then there's the other type of person that says, I work for you knowing my gear in my room. So I'm going to ask you questions and then I'm going to try to bring out from you using my gear and what I know. I'm going to try to do what you would do if you had my skills and objectivity, you know. So, sure. So there's two very distinct, not that one is better than the other, um, but you need because sometimes I have clients who they want me to go wild and do whatever I want and they don't want to give me any guidance. And sometimes I have people that uh, almost d want me to hand their mix back to them and say it's mastering and build them and everywhere in between. And, um, so there's two types of mastering engineers, and so it's really important to have a discussion with the producer or the artist in the event that there's no producer to find out what, where you want to go, how loud, this, that. Yeah. For instance, I just worked on an album where one of the things I'm often called to do is to make the songs a very similar loudness profile so that people aren't constantly grabbing their volume knobs. Sure. And um, it's a 12-song album that has very different musical... Uh, or uh, arrangements and mm -hmm. sometimes there aren't bass instruments and sometimes there are upright bass and trying to get that to match was driving me crazy I spent a long time on it and then the artist came in and said no I want the vocal to be the same level all the way through I don't care about the music interesting it, yeah and it's it's a totally it's totally legitimate way to go I wish sure. I'd have yeah. known it before I started, but uh, it was probably my fault for not asking, you know. So you can't listen to that album without, it depends. I mean, if you just listen to the vocal, the vocal is the same level if you jump around on in the digital editor, boom, bam, boom, bam, boom. It's the same vocal, but one yeah. may have a big bass and one may not, you know. Interesting. So, I mean, so describe then the process. So when you when you have someone that says, hey, I want you to master my album... I mean, what, what's the timeline? It, it, in terms of, for me, I check with them with respect to, uh, do they have a release date or a pub public relations date uh, or what, what, what is their schedule? And then the next thing is, can they get back to me with edits? So say I get your, your album Monday and it takes me one to three days to get you a first version of it. It depends on how fast the artist is to get back to me. I have art artists that take two weeks to get back to me, and I have artists that get mm. back to me in 12 hours. So yeah. what happens is when you take two weeks, other projects come in, and they have deadlines, and it pushes you further. So the people that get back to me within a day or so are the ones who get done in a week. Yeah. So a week to two weeks is normal, and it really depends on if you need to work faster, I will. At the same token, you don't want to go too, too fast and, and make decisions. You want to, I, one thing I like to do is make sure that people are listening on speakers that they are used to, yeah. um, which impacts their, my ability to have attended sessions, which we'll talk about later. But um, 
like this morning I had a client say that there wasn't enough bass in his album. Now I know there's a lot of bass and I asked him, what were you listening to it? He said, well, my laptop speakers and then my iPod buds. And it's like, okay, I'll add more bass, but your speakers aren't capable of even generating any bass I add. So you need to go listen. And so then he listened on a stereo in his car and said, yeah, you can't add more bass. And I'm like, okay. So if I would have just hurried up and added more bass, that would have been the wrong thing. So you, you want to go as fast as you can, but a, a week to two weeks, is is reasonable yeah so you mentioned having a client in the room do you do you prefer to work alone is it more difficult to work with someone there with you or because i I feel like sometimes even when mixing some people will say you know oh well you know it doesn't sound x y you know blah 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 whatever and it's like, we'll take it to the car. And then they're like, oh, wow, it sounds great. You know, it's like, well, you don't you don't know my speakers like right. Like I, you know, what do you think about that? Um, yes, no, yes. I mean, I think ultimately, ultimately, I don't like it because, well, here's the problem. The first is I've never had anyone who's come in who's known my speakers. I have Dunleavy's. They're not a common speaker for most people to have. I don't think I'd own them if I weren't mastering because they're so big and, uh, you know, hard to move. And yeah. the other thing is the Dunleavy's don't have a wide sweet spot. They're very narrow. Um, yeah. So the person even to make a decision would have to sit where I sit. So the yeah. problem is that they're making decisions having never become accustomed to my speakers or my room. And that never works. What I do like is if someone comes in and we work on one song together and then they take it home and then call me in a day or two and yeah i do that or um i'll have them come in to do the sequencing because some people i have people that are very picky about fades and spacing but don't care about the song having them in the room for fades and spacing can go faster than um, so it, it really depends. If I were a mix engineer, I, I just would, I'd never want to have someone in there with me unless we were doing last minute changes to almost yeah. lock it. They just don't understand. And it's not a disrespectful statement. They don't understand our room. They don't understand how uh, mixing is like sausage or public policy. You don't really want to see what goes into it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you solo, I mean, and guitar, it's true. I, yeah. I, I prefer to work the same way. I prefer to kind of get the mix 80% there and then have them come in, you right. know, and even my more preferred way than that is, you know, get the mix 80% there, then email it to them. And then from there, tweak it to 90% and then they come in for the very last bit. And cause it's easier and, you know, you get the whole, like, and I, you know, I've, I've mixed enough stuff where, where people, I, I can know without a doubt that it takes longer when people are in there. Oh Yeah. That's the other thing. I mean, ultimately, we we have to pay our bills. I mean, our bank, electric company, et cetera, insurance, they want money. And if it takes you 20 hours to mix something that you could do, you know, in the privacy of your yourself at six, you have to work faster. You blow your ears out, you blow your mind out, and ultimately, you've got to pay your bills. I mean, Yeah. So and it never goes faster when you have people there. It's always what's this do? What's that do? And the thing is, I don't. I, I, you want to answer people, you know? But, yeah, yeah. I mean, because uh, you almost feel rude if you don't. I mean, well, there are mastering engineers. 
that that charge hourly and they've done you know ten thousand records and have been mastering since the sixties or seventies. They do that and they'll charge hourly and, and they're like one hundred and eighty an hour. And if you want to sit and ask about stuff, they'll sit there all day with you because you're one hundred and eighty an hour. And unfortunately, yeah. well, I know that even uh, I've watched some interviews with Bob Katz and you know he likes to just sit with the per. He prefers to sit with the person the whole time. Yeah. Um, you know, and he obviously does good work. So I mean, right. I guess it works for him. Yeah, I think everybody's different on that end, and I just think that my my pre- my my preference. I don't mind having the person in, but they're not used to my room. And I have to say, every time I've had these complicated projects with the people and the producer, and have had more people in the room, invariably they end up going back and asking me to do a version on my own without them there, and they end up picking that version. And it's just it's frustrating because I wasn't charging by the hour, and I probably lost days. But so. It, it's a complicated answer. In my situation, I'd prefer to have the person there partially, but not the whole time now. Yeah. So what what type of specialty equipment do you use for mastering that, you know, most studios don't have? I mean, I'm assuming you use a lot of analog stuff. And yeah. I know that there are, you know, there are pieces of gear that aren't really applicable to a mixing studio that a lot of mastering guys use like why you know why would i necessarily need a shadow hills mastering compressor type thing you know in tracking i mean right would i use it that much i mean what what do you think for for mastering if you just want if we just stick to the rack gear and stuff we use our stuff has to be able to be recalled a year later and so a lot of our gear goes click 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 and unfortunately the switches that go for that are by Elma or some of the other companies that are very good. You're looking at 100 to $200 for a switch like that, and that's because of how complicated they are and how few of them they make now that the military and aerospace industries are going, and medical industries are doing other digitally controlled things. So mm-hmm. you're looking at one of the reasons our gear is so expensive is because it's, it uses very expensive parts. Uh, the other thing is a lot of our gear is matched left and right to within tenths of a dB, if not less, for stereo imaging. Um, another thing about our gear is a lot of the mastering guys, we modify our gear. And I used to take the tact of why would you presume to know more than the maker of the gear? Um, but you got to realize the maker of the gear is making their gear for tracking and mixing because more people do that so even i I mean they want utility they want it versatile they want anybody to be able to love it right and so a lot of our gear is more expensive because so like i have a version of the stc8 by crane song that was ripped apart and modified by dave hill to have different uh attack and release considerations for the limiter section so that it didn't uh distort on me uh, whereas it wouldn't distort for people in tracking in a hundred years. So, um, yeah. so sometimes we have gear that you'll see in mixing engineers, like you'll see the STCA in mixing, but it's a modified or a different version of it. Um, and all of it has to be able to be recalled. Um, now I do have a Rupert Neve, uh, mastering, uh, console called the masterpiece. And there's about 20 to 23 of them in the world. Um, it was made by a company called Legendary Audio out of Texas, and uh, Billy Stahl and Rupert Neve designed it. And the reason there are only so many of them is it uses transformers that Rupert had been hoarding away from back when he did work with George, Sir George Martin. And there See, are, 
Yeah, so there are only so many of those transformers. Uh, they needed two of them for the console. They were doing for uh, for Sir George, and uh, they uh, the company wouldn't make two. They only made a hundred. So there's only so many of these that can be made, and every little thing on it click click clicks, and it was all done by Neve. So it was quite a bit of money and very difficult decision. Um, now after five years, I think I finally paid it off this month because um, hmm. it was a lot of money, and but. It does some things like at any different point, you could apply processing to different frequencies, like only this uh, 1073 uh, transformer on the lows or this on the highs. Or hmm. and Another thing that w we do in mastering is um, we have a console. Mastering guys generally have a console that allows our gear to be switched in or switched out without using the bypass on gear. People don't realize that bypass on a piece of gear often doesn't bypass the gear, it just bypasses the processing. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, on a manly variable mu, which you see a lot in mastering, bypassing it doesn't, go, doesn't bypass the input and output transformers. And those are very color transformers, or, or at least in mastering, they are considered colored. And without a console to patch that in, in and out, you wouldn't be able to take it out of the chain, you know? Yeah. So, so I mean, on the console, it's hard bypassed, like a, like a true bypass guitar pedal or something. Yes. And what it is, is I have a manly backbone. There are, there's uh, Crookwood makes one and um, Dangerous Audio and some other folks make them. But um, the thing I like about the manly backbone that is so cool is um, it constantly feeds the chain to your compressor so that when you enable the compressor, you hear it uh, compressing, there's no ramp up. And yeah, sure. It's not zero dB, and then all of a sudden it's compressing. Right, because most compressors sound good when yeah. you ramp up. Yeah, and so I'm able to make decisions. And um, the two things that made me get vastly better as uh, a mastering engineer, the backbone, because I was able to hear gear that I thought did one thing actually did another. And being able to turn, take, hear it instantly. I mean, before the backbone, I had to print two versions of it, then go back and listen to them. Yeah, um, and that takes a lot of time. It does. And then the other thing is the Cranesong Avocet. And the reason I say that, that's my monitoring controller, is the Cranesong, I can switch between the mix, which I call source, and the proposed master, which I call target. And the Cranesong allows me to offset the volume, so I sit and make the mix from the mixing engineer the same loudness as my master. And when you go back and forth, you find out whether your EQ changes are better or worse and whether your compression sounds good or bad. And prior to that, there was no way to really compare the same loudness without moving the volume knob up and down and with your hand. And sure. Humans, Interesting. Yeah, humans generally think that louder sounds better. Sure. And so you, you, if you're a mastering engineer and you don't have a way to compare the mix for where you started to where you're going, you don't know if the choices you're making are actually for the betterment of the project or the detriment. And you can always convince yourself it's better because it's going to be louder, right? And yeah. I really got better at a lot of things, being able to compare. Because prior to that, I had a Coleman, which was a great switcher, but I had to switch the volume by hand, and yeah. it's not accurate. So so, yeah. so, so I'm guessing you don't use a lot of plugins. Um, I, I have a lot of plugins, and occasionally I use them. 
There are times when I use them for little here and there things. Um, but in general, no, I use outboard gear. Even my limiters are done through a hardware digital box called the TC Electronic System 6000. Um, because It has dedicated CPU brains that run it. So it's not that I don't use a lot of plugins. It's that at the end of the chain, when you're in mastering, little teeny things really affect the mix. Like when you're at the tracking and you want to track a piano through a guitar, a boss distortion pedal, that can be really cool. But in mastering, unfortunately, the slightest little uh, degradation of the signal can have a big, big, big effect on yeah. So um, that, that said, um, I generally upsample my source that I get from the client to 96K. And then if I do have to use a plug-in, I do it at 96 because I think plug-ins sound better at 96. Sure. Um, and I, I have three or four DSers. A lot of them are hardware. But I have a, a couple digital DSers I like occasionally. Um, there's some EQs I like occasionally. It, I, but I don't use a lot of plug-ins, no. Um, yeah. So what, what hardware pieces do you use when you, know, you get a mix and it's a little digital sounding and you want to warm it up a bit? I mean, do you prefer to run it through some tube gear or what, you know, what pieces are sort of your go-to pieces in your mind for, oh, this thing needs some, some help in the warm department? In the warm area. That's a good question because I, I, I get this a good bit and you um, there's a couple things I can do. I have an, an actual ATR 104 machine and sometimes I run mixes to tape and back and you know master hmm. from the tape. And the thing about that is you never know until you do it. I've had rock albums that I thought were going to go great to tape and they were horrible and I've had uh, electronic albums that I would have never tried but I did for fun and it worked out. So... Uh, so you run you run to the tape first, and then you process it. And then I master from the tape instead of from yeah. the yeah. That's that works sometimes. Um, I have um, some tube gear uh, from Manly. I have a very colored modified Varimu that they change the tubes that come from the stock Varimu, and this Varimu is very goopy. Um, I can't use it on every project, but sometimes it it can round things off in a nice way. Um, in the Neve Masterpiece, there's a section that has uh, 1073 transformers. There's another section uh, that has um, filters from earlier times. So you have to try different things. I And it, tape doesn't always work and tube gear doesn't always work because when you when you have digital issues, sometimes the digital issues deal with things that are really far in there like um, clock issues or bad converters or buzz or things that happen many generations before the mix happened and they're hard to sure. get out. You know, I uh, had one that just gave me all kinds of trouble and it, it came in and it was mixed on a Neve console to try to undid. The, the, they had been working on the album for a long time and they recorded it 16 bit and they had used uh, old, old converters and it's just, everything sounded really mm stair steppy and i did all kinds of stuff and even at the end i still i threw everything at it even at the end that was an example where i tried the the, the helios plugins from uad mm -hmm. uh, just because those transformers are so cool 
but uh, yeah, so I yeah exactly. I use the analog gear sometimes tape to try to undigitize things. Now, do you ever master to tape? Um, yeah, I actually get I get projects on tape. Uh, I have several right now I'm working on, and I also have projects where the client wants to deliver a tape to the lacquer house or whatever. So sometimes I have to, and that involves me getting, you know, razor blades and splicing it and doing the sequencing that way. Um, hmm. That's less that the delivering a final master tape is less common. Receiving mixes on tape happens a good bit. And uh, I'd say using the tape deck happens a lot as an effect processor. Gotcha. So do you feel like the analog gear helps you get a mix louder and it's still sounding good? I mean, do you feel like plugins suffer a little bit at getting something loud and proud? I mean, do you feel like the analog gear helps it sound loud without really sounding crushed? That's a really good question. Um, I think as of today, and it's 2013, I think digital equalizers, the plugins from various companies, I think they can be good to very, very good. So if you use a plugin, there's some equalizers that are just equalizers on of their own right that are good. And then you have the, the stuff that Universal Audio does with their uh, the various different EQs they have that are very good. Um, I don't, I believe that uh, digital compressors get you really far. And especially in mixing, I, I wonder if you could tell the difference sometimes, but um, in mastering, you can hear the difference between there, there's just, there's some sort of intangible element to the whole compression thing that is beyond the current uh, paradigm of how they model things. And I don't want to hurt their feelings. It's just, there's some weirdness that they're not catching that. Yeah. Okay. So the compression, I think, I think analog compression Sounds better, sounds less dehydrated, etc. However, when it comes to the limiting, some of the digital limiters have the ability to do the look-ahead thing, which you can't possibly do in analog. Now, analog obviously operates at the speed of light because of its electricity, but I actually have... um, There's two ways to go about it. Some mastering engineers do their loudness up front and capture it that way. And that's generally how I work most of the time. I capture um, at, at 44, 24, 44, and I capture it as loud as it's going to get. But there are a lot of people, and I think the majority do it the other way, where they work within more conservative levels with their analog gear, and then they use digital plugins and things to make it loud at the end. So, so what term- do you think is the benefit of doing it the other way, by making it, capturing the loudness, and then... You know, I, I guess it just keeps you from running in circles and having to re-EQ things again and again and again. Okay, this is a, this is a, there's not a right answer. Um, I think that my master's catching them loud sounds better, sounds more organic and will sound like a record you want to listen to in 10 years and aren't embarrassed by dating it. Um yeah. The downside to my approach is you can clip analog gear if you always work at that top end there. Now, 
you are less likely to clip it if in a rock situation because that stuff, even though it's boisterous, it's kind of constrained. You, if with a classical piece or a piano or flamenco guitar, you can actually clip analog gear because of harmonics that are like five times louder than the peak. So sure, that's the danger is that you can clip your analog gear. the The other downside to mine is if there's a recall, you have to go back and rerun everything, um, yeah. or you should. Now with the other way they can change loudness up and down in the box without having to fire up the analog gear. They're, they're both legitimate ways to work. And I think depending on the, the person who's doing it, I've worked both ways. I generally work more in the direction of catching it loud and being done, but they both work. Um, that, yeah. I mean, I think some of the most successful mastering engineers work the other way. They capture it, low and then turn it up in the box and you know mm. that you know I, I i don't think there's a right answer to that one i think the sure. the results are the answer yeah yeah so i mean what is your opinion about loudness and and obviously the loudness wars I um mean, i i i um there was a gentleman from the university of london who did his graduate thesis on do loud songs sell better? Uh, it was called Obsession with Compression, and it was published in 2009. Um, and I can get you the link for it. Um, and he found sure. that louder stuff not only did not sell more, but it actually didn't have the favorable opinion uh, with people. The, the problem with loudness is people need to listen to this stuff at the level that it actually really is people like to have their volume knob on one and and listen to something but human hearing isn't linear and as you turn things up we hear things differently and so the problem okay loudness is is good as long as the mix isn't breaking up there isn't distortion and also some genres really do well as loud as possible there's some electronica there's yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the that's the creative point that they're trying to make. A lot of uh, you know mastering for electronic music or club dance type music. It's like that's the point. It's supposed to sound like you're in the club. Right. I mean. Right. And if you and if it's not loud, it doesn't sound like that. So it doesn't accomplish part of the production goal. Right. And it's just so hard when you hear an album where there are these great instruments and they. Great players, but everything is the same level because it's so squashed. The guitar and the yeah. kick drum, everything is the same. An acoustic guitar is as loud as a kick drum is as loud as a, a fiddle. It's it's ridiculous. So the 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 problem is, I, I like loudness when it's when it's appropriate, but the loudness we see that people complain about is is so far overdone that if people would turn up their stereos to eight, they would stick their fingers in their ear. But that's what they're doing because they're listening down at one. Um, yeah. And that, that deals with calibrated monitoring systems, which is something I deal with with mixed people, um, et cetera, which we could talk about later or whatever. But the loudness, and the, but the problem is, I you know, if the client wants it a certain loudness, and then I I'll, I try to discourage them, but ultimately I work for them, so I'll do what they want. But yeah, I try. I know on uh, the album I sent you recently, you know, that's a very dynamic album, right? And and you know, I I told him I was like, listen. You know, he has sort of a, a, a background and really enjoying a lot of orchestral stuff. You know, he's really into Hans Zimmer and stuff like that. And obviously he's into rock music. Um, and so there's that album was very dense, you know. Um, 
but at the same time, you know, every song on that album had probably 125 tracks. There were probably two or three that didn't. You know, wow. And you probably, yeah. But I mean, some of those some of those songs had upwards of 100, 125 tracks. And now, granted, not I don't think there was any song where all of them were playing at once. But you know, and so yeah, I mean that that was a very that was a hard album to mix because he wanted it super dynamic, but at the same time, it was a rock album. Um, and he wanted it to be loud, but I'm glad in the end that he chose to, you know, not crush it. Well, um, there was one time he, uh, th- this client had to have me back off because he had some intro parts that were like 25 dB softer than the climax. Yeah. And I had turned those up and the climax down and I had tried to make them maybe eight db apart from one another not because i didn't agree with him but because i was worried about his listeners getting mad at him yeah and you know he came back with the courage to say we're going to do it my way and i'm like i i'm fine with that but i think part of what you pay me for is to point out things when i can and one of them is you may get some flack for this so as long as you're cool with it yeah um, and that's the thing you know he he spent a long time writing the songs and working on the songs and and you know we spent a long time recording it and quite a while mixing it. Um, the the mix stage was was a lot quicker than I thought it would be. Actually, I mean we were mixing basically every day for three weeks, and okay. uh, I thought it would take a lot longer because the songs were so large. But I am glad. You know, I told him I was like, you know, this album sounds really cool because it's different. You know, and you don't I don't really hear stuff like this, and it's cool that you have an intro that's like you know single notes on a piano. And then it gets the, to this massive choir and strings and all the above. And so, but I was a little worried initially, and I'm, I'm very glad that he did. He did, you know, have you back it off to at least a little less. You know, I'm sure you you did maximize the loudness just a, a, a little bit, but not, you know, as you might expect from a typical client. Well, you know, when you deal one one kind of thing we deal with in mastering is. And I don't know if this is, this is a secret, but I don't know if it's a very interesting secret. It's if you have a band where you have a good mix and they have an intro, maybe it's just acoustic guitar and the kick drum going, and then the band comes in, invariably the the mix level is perfect. But once I start my loudness process, I can screw up the relationship between those two things. So yeah. there's a lot of times I happen to use Sequoia for my editor, and it has um, clip uh, ability that I, I think Nuendo and, and Cubase have as well, where if you have a song, I can, cl- I can cut it into two pieces, and I could change the volume or other things independently. Pro Tools just got this this year, and they're acting like they invented the wheel. But yeah. the fact of the matter is um, I... There's a lot of times I have to stair step songs so that I can get back to what the mix came to me as. Because as you turn it up, there are times where I'm undoing that. The dynamic changes mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. songs and sections. And that's where the sure. app is. That's great because you go back and forth and listen to what your mix came in at and where I'm going. And am I... Th- that's another thing. I, I try to have a talk with the client. Do they like their mixes? And and it, what don't they like or whatever. And you find out um, that if you've spent three weeks every day to get some relationship right, the last thing you want is me to come in 
and blast that all away. That's horrible. Sure. The, another secret I have with respect to that is if, if a client calls me and says, I have a deadline, and I shouldn't say this out loud, and they say it's at the end of the month and I'm mixing these two weeks, uh, and that gives you two weeks to master. Well, I, 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 they never get done in two weeks. And they'll call me yeah. at the end of the two weeks and say, uh, I, have, I won't move my deadline. Um, will you still master it if I give you a week less time? And what I say to them, to the last person is, if you need another week at mixing, you take that. It is more important that the mixing folks have the time to do their job than, yeah. and I have less time because ultimately, if the, the mix is, is the house that everything stands on, if it's wrong, I can't duct tape it together. So Yeah. So, I mean, do you find it, um, I mean, obviously it's about sort of the client's decision in the end, mm -hmm. but do you find that it's troublesome getting mixes that are overly dynamic? No, my, I am much, I have a much, oh, I'd rather deal with that all day. The, 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 uh, the problem I have is when the client gives me a bricked mix that is already louder than I would master a rock album. Yeah. And I get that. And there's just, it's just, there's. That's a bad situation because ultimately my gear needs a certain amount of headroom to work in its sweet spot. And you don't give me that. So yeah. so what, what level of, you know, this is a great question okay. for the guys at home. Um, if you were to say, you know, in general, let's say you're working on a rock project. Okay. What peak level do you want from a mixer? This is out, a, out of their mix. If you only listen to one part of my rambling today, I think this is the most important part for mix folks. I, and it deals with a calibrated monitoring situation, okay? Because it's the Wild West out there. There aren't any standards, and nobody nobody's talking to anybody else. Um, yeah. You can give me peaks that are up to zero. Actually, I'd prefer that you at least had some sort of limiting thing at minus one-tenth of a dB with a threshold of minus one-tenth of a dB. Sure. Um, you know, your peaks can be up there, but your your RMS, your average, I like minus 12-ish um, with the idea that I'm going to then master the album to say minus eight. Uh, and we're talking RMS. Um, realizing that the Metallica, that album, that Death Magnetic was minus five, and there's just no... Yeah. yeah. So now, why do I say minus 12? <laughs> And, and it can be minus 14, it can be, because I also get people that give me songs that come in on average at minus 22, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're so scared of not giving me room that they, okay, why does this matter? And it's, it's, it goes back to that equal loudness, Fletcher Munson curve thing. And it's, it's this, if you approve mixes, say at minus 12, and you like the timbre of them and where they sound. When I make them louder to whatever that commercial level is from minus nine to minus six, you will have less surprises and less the feeling that I turned your stuff inside out. If you give it to me at minus eight or you give it to me at minus 20, my changes are going to screw with what you thought you had. So... The idea is if you give it to me at minus 12 ballpark, uh, I could polish. The second thing that I say to mix folks, and I, I can get you the link for this because there was an article I published in, in Drum about the, 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 uh, the calibration of your monitors. And it is um, if you work at about eight, 
wherever you're sitting, if you're working at a sound pressure level of about 84 decibels, that's a sweet spot where the bass is telling you about what the bass is going to be like up and down as you turn the volume up and down. And the high end is going to be where it is if you turn it up and down. And it's also a level where you're not going to damage your ears if, if you're working louder. So what I tell people to do is figure out, and the art. This is a little bit of a longer process, but the article figures out. Say, say I'm gonna say that uh, minus 18 dB full scale is gonna be my 84. So you then shoot sine waves through your uh, or white noise through you know, weighted it minus 20 or whatever. And you get it to the sound pressure level at 86, and then you mark that on your, your with grease pencil or wherever your knob is, and then you realize that zero, which is full scale, then becomes you know 104 dB sound pressure level. So if you go and play an album like that Metallica album that's minus six, it's going to be coming through your speakers at about 100 decibels or 98 decibels sound pressure level. You will not want to sit there. Your face will fall off. Yeah. And just by doing this, you do three things. One, you you automatically stop yourself from over loudening and compressing things. Number two, you protect your hearing because you are working at a reasonable level, realizing, of course, that it's totally normal to go up to listen to bass and then go down or walk down the hallway and do all those tricks we do. Sure. And then the third thing you do by working at 84 is you have less chance of your mixes coming back because that whole equal loudness Fletcher Munson thing of, um, in short, if you mix the album really soft, you're going to end up having uh, less low you're going to put in too much low end to make it sound normal and if you mix really loud you're going to push too much high end and so when you're at 84 it's the more flat level for human hearing so that choices you're making on your low and high end will translate to other places better if you're working at that level that is the most important thing and it's not taught anywhere and i even had a quote from steven slate because he and i talked about it you know, yeah, you can make an album on your phone, but the problem is there, in olden days, there were years of calibration and things you had to do because you had a tape deck and you had a console and you had to make sure the VU meters matched because the tape deck was down the hall in a, in a machine room and the console was what you were using to gauge whether you were clipping or not. And so yeah. all this stuff automatically, without people knowing it, was gain staged correctly. You go to digital and it's a different scale and people just bought their thing at Best Buy and they got a, a box, a USB box for their birthday and it cost 40 bucks and they can go wild and next thing you know, they're into it three years later and they still don't understand this calibration stuff and unfortunately it can bite you in the in the um, the ear the two most important things we do after listen are move the mic and gain staging whether it's mastering whether it's a guitar player has to deal between the volume knobs between his input and his output gain gain staging at every level of the recording life cycle is totally critical and Mm -hmm. By doing what you that is so when you handed me those mixes, they were going to translate better because you had already chosen relationships among the frequencies that's going to translate by doing that, you know. Yeah, so when I mix, I mix, uh, I use a, a dangerous monitor ST, okay, and so I mix it. A, <laughs> I have a mark, um, I'm not exactly sure what it is, I haven't tested it with an SPL meter, but. You know, I I would say I mix pretty low, 
right. um, in general. And because especially on a song like, you know, on, on that album, especially when there's all those heavy guitars and stuff, it just gets exhausting to, you know, to do that. And, and you want to have um, a career tomorrow and have ears. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and we like I said, we were mixing for three weeks straight. And I mean, every day. And I, I would have gone nuts, you know. Um, and so it's, it's interesting, though, because, yeah, I mean, when I gain stage my tracks in that way, you know, my master, I think on some of those tracks, the RMS was probably negative 20. Yeah. I but mean, it was easily. A, right. No, no. Um, the, the, so it's just, a, well, I know when I get files, I can tell, I jump around and I can tell whether it's going to be a good day at the office or not when I know if the mix person had gained stage his or her stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I want to say this, I got an album last week. It was the gentleman's first album he'd ever mixed. He's in his fifties. He's never done it before. And daggone, this guy could go toe to toe and it's his first album. And I have stuff that I've had guys that have been mixing for a long time that are still not getting it. And Mm. so I don't want us to sound like it's a snobbery thing. Um, there's some things that you can't shortcut and, having your monitor situation there are physics that you can't get around that's all yeah you said that you prefer to master something at sort of a an rms you know your your preferred loudness is negative eight well it used to be minus 12 about 10 years ago but it's been creeping up to like minus 10 now and mm-hmm. I try to give it to people anywhere between minus 11 and minus 9, 9, 10. And then if they ask me to turn it up, I will. Um, you can hear on our speakers where stuff feels comfortable going. You just can. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I give it to them. I try to make my clients have the smallest house on Loud Street. You don't want the largest house because you can never sell it if you need to move. But you sure. don't want to live down the block, down the street either. So, so I give them stuff around minus ten in that range because that I'll tell you what: once you get to minus ten, every little bit is louder and louder and harder on your your waveform. It just the way it is. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, it, it, unfor- it's rare I have someone say turn it down. I'm so happy when they do. But I, yeah. I, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by transients and how I feel like one of the biggest reasons why a lot of analog stuff, whether it's analog, you know, compressors, EQs, whatever, um, tape, one of the biggest reasons I feel like that stuff sounds better is the way it handles the transients. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily, obviously, in a more accurate way, but, you know, it, it will clip, like, let's say a snare drum, for example. You know, if you record a snare drum through a millennia preamp straight to, uh, you know, a, a digital converter, it chances are it'll be a pretty spiky transient. Right. Um, and it's not a bad sound, but the RMS is so much lower. I mean, it's almost ridiculous. I mean, if you look at the, the you know, the meat of the snare drum versus the peak of the snare drum, the difference is wild. It's vast, yeah. Versus if you record, you know, with a Neve preamp on the on the brink of distortion, you know, you at least how I often do it on snare drum is I'll, you know, I have BAE preamps and I usually use that on snare. Um, you know, I'll crank it up to the point when it starts to distort and then I'll do one 5 dB click lower than that. Mm-hmm. Um, just so you get just sort of on the brink of distortion. You know, if they hit a loud hit, it'll distort, but not the average, you know. And, you know, then I'll run it through some compressors or whatever. And so by the time it gets in the, in the computer, you know, the waveform looks more like a triangle 
you know, unless like a a funnel. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, I, I mean, I guess it's the best description I can come up with. Now, as far as transients go, what I'm really interested in, you know, I, I'm not a mastering engineer, but I'm always fascinated by mixes that and masters that when you put them in the D, you know, you can pull them up from, right. you know, the CD, you put them in the DW and you look at the waveform and, you know, a lot of masters that are loud and proud and also at the same time sound good, like some stuff from Ted Jensen, you know, that's not crushed. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive how some of it, some of it, the stuff that he'll put out is, you know, too loud for my taste, but others is like, wow, that's really loud, but it still sounds good. Um, you know, what he I, is one of my favorite people that make, I've heard albums from him that are crazy loud, but they don't break up. Yeah. I've never met, I've met a, almost everybody, but I have not met him. And I just want to say that he's pulled that off. But then I've also heard records that, that I didn't like that he did. And so I think, again, I think it's a combination of him working hand in hand with the mixing person. Um, yeah. But um, in terms of transients, what I do, it's not multi-band compression, but my compressors, ha I, I do a lot of work with my side chains. So my, my compressors, I have one that I have do my upper mids, and I have a side chain in on him to make him pay less attention to the lows. So I'm so I don't send only some to him, and he only compresses some things. I send everything to him, but I have him kind of ignoring. And then I also have one guy, a Rupert Neve EQ that I use on my low end. I hate to use him on that because I want to use him on other things, but he's so good at getting a kick drum to behave for me. And then sure. I have another guy I do for my highs. So long story short, that's how I go about it. And also it matters which order I put them in. Um, but I've also seen people, I, I think a lot of that really loud transient stuff, I think what they're doing, there's two, two things. There's a lot of parallel compression going on where there's something just obliterated in the background, folded in beneath the uncompressed signal. And I yeah. think the other one that I'm seeing, especially I, I investigated, there were a couple albums that I thought uh, Ted Jensen just knocked out of the park into the river. And so I did some back channel talks of calling the people who worked with the mixing and whatever. And what they said was that the albums, besides being tracked and mixed well, used extensive use of... Uh, drum sample replacement so even though they had phenomenal drum sounds they replaced all the drums and used just some of the real overheads and those dry drum samples can be compressed and made very very spiky uh and staccato in a way that you can't when you have all these open mics yeah. Uh, again, it's an illusion that if people saw, if you soloed a guitar on, on any mix you pull up right now, the guitar player would say, that sounds horrible. That's not what my guitar sounds like. Well, it's because the all the frequencies are coming from other people and the illusion that becomes, and you know what I'm talking about. Sure. Um, yeah. I'm, well, especially, I mean, a lot of guitar players, I think one of the biggest problems with, you know, recording guitars is that when a guitar player puts up their amp, you know, and they stand in front of it, they're happy. Let's say they get it to where they're happy, okay? So that's right. good. You put it on a mic, and you put it up on the, the speakers, and, you know, you're a lot, at least when I record guitars, I always have the guitarist in the control room, 
and they're listening over the monitors. Right. And, you know, they're, they're sitting there saying, well, where's all the low end? And I'm sitting there smiling like, oh, it sounds great, right? Right. <laughs> and, you know, and, and they're like, no, it doesn't sound huge. It's like, yes, it does. It mm-hmm. sounds huge in the mid-range, which is what you need. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't, you know, a lot of, they, they have that, same with bass, you know, you, you can't make a bass sound huge, huge if you're doing an album with, you know, 60 tracks of guitars and drums and vocals and, you know what I mean? The bass, it will not fit. Like, it just will not. I mean, you can't just make the bass as big as possible. And, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things that suffers in the modern way that we make records is when we do things individually, you know, we forget about the the entire production. Um, You know, if you were to record that same band, let's, you know, let's say we're dealing with, you know, a pretty big rock band where there's, you know, two guitars, bass, drums, organ, piano, you know, multiple vocals, percussion. If you were to actually have a band that recorded all live, you know, with all 60 people versus doing it all individually, you could clearly tell, you know, wow, that tambourine is way too, you know, bright or wow, that bass guitar is way too full because you can hear the relationship to the rest of the band live. Right. But when you do everything separate, you can't hear that relationship. And, you know, so I like to be a little bit optimistic and say, well, you know, I think people just, you know, it's not that they can't get good sounds or it's not that, you know, they don't, they're not as good as they used to be or whatever. It's, you know, that they, they have a harder time guessing how it's going to fit in the production. Right. Well, and, you have bands that they are used to their practice mix where they rehearse, which is usually in front of their instrument, uh, which which means I don't know how you, you get them to mix. Um, another thing is it is different now because you can go to a mall store and pick up a guitar and, and play, which I'm for, by the way. My grandfather uh, played in a big band in the 1930s and early 40s, and he played guitar, and he was the only guitar player, and his you know, and they had like all these pieces of brass and whatever. And he knows all these two chord chords where he doesn't do the third, the bass note. And I'm like, why, why aren't you playing the chord? And he used to Mm -hmm. say, because that's coming from the other guy. Yeah. They actually worked out how um, across multiple instruments, a chord would be played, which is self-evident to some folks at home listening, going, well, no, of course. But in today's rock and roll, three chords and, uh, you know, we're blaring. Uh, that kind of uh, harmony of of playing parts together to become one big voice is uh, it's not something you see see that much. But you know. yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in planning out as much as you can. You know, because if you don't, you know, if, again, if you sit there and you say, okay, I want this section to sound huge with lots of guitars, that's like so general, mm-hmm. and you're just going to end up stepping on your foot. You know what I mean? It just just trying to put all this stuff into a mix that won't fit even note wise and you know I, I think you you raise a good point because I, they like people think that EQ you know removes notes you know and it doesn't really like you can sure you can remove a resonance right but you know if if you're trying to fit three guitar tracks together and they're all playing the exact same thing it's gonna build up it doesn't matter you know, how good of an engineer you are. It's just a musical property. It's physics, exactly. And so, and the same type thing with, you know, uh, anything really. I mean, a bass, you know, if if you've got a piano and the pianist is just roaring away, away on these low notes and the piano, you know, can have an ungodly huge low end um, and then the bass is playing those same roots, 
yeah. they're they're going to clash. And you know, of course, I, I've always I've always been fascinated by the idea that you know, well, is it better to have the pianist play those notes to get the you know to get the upper harmonics of them and then just filter them out, or is it better to just not play them at all? And I think there's obviously a, a relationship you gotta just try sometimes. You know, sometimes it is better to actually have the pianist play those low notes, but then just make it a really thin sounding piano. And I feel like there are times when that works better. I think the lesson uh, here for the folks listening at home would be pre-production, which is a time when you work a lot of these parts out, when you sit down and you think deeply about who's playing what, what song are we doing, etc. Um, who's doing what, will save you. You know, hire your tracking engineer for how many hours or whatever. If you spend one to four hours with your tracking engineer, at whatever his or her rate is, I swear you will cut out a day almost per hour that you spend with him or her because you're going to be more efficient and better planned when you go to the studio. And yeah. I think the tracking people would, even though they might be losing two days of booking, would rather have you come in more refreshed and know where you're going and you know, pocket that money for, for production or distribution or marketing later and let him or her go work on another project. It, yeah. People like the Beatles and that, they worked, you know, maybe they didn't have PhDs and whatever, but you can rest assured that they work these things out just as a matter of course. They, it was important to them. What are you doing? What am I doing? What are you singing? What am I singing? And Ringo, stay out of the way. And honestly, they they worked like a one, like at times, bands like, the, I use them as an example, but there are so many other uh, bands, they become one instrument, you know? I mean, the, sure. the Scorpions... Um, Rock You Like a Hurricane, it's a song that's used a lot. My understanding is that opening uh, bar, uh, power chord, one guitarist plays one note and the other guy plays the other note and they're offset just by the time that the pick would hit, you know, uh, from one string to the other, the fifth from the other. And it just sounds massive and one guy's playing one note and the other's playing the other note. It's it, it doesn't yeah, matter well, what's even uh, even back in black, you know, that's a, oh, that's another example of that. I use I mean, that album all the time to check sure. when I get monitors for a review. Sorry. I you don't know was that album recorded last week or 10 years ago or 30 Exactly. Yeah. 30 years I mean, ago. that's that's what's amazing. I mean, you you listen to that album and you realize, wow, you know, there's only two guitars really yeah. like on the whole album yeah. like it's not tons of guitar tracks going, and it's two, and one's playing down low, and one's playing sort of in the middle of the neck, yep. and it just sounds massive. I mean, and that's, you know, I was so, so impressed when I got the new, uh, the Black Ice album, Okay, um, which was done by Brendan O'Brien, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, because to me, when I listen to that album, you know, it sounds like ACDC, because... Not because of necessarily how it was recorded, even though it was recorded and mixed very well, but the their our relationship between the guitars is still the same. You know, they still understand why are you playing what I'm playing. You know, <laughs> and and they play like a band. You know, I, I love that album. Um, and the same thing goes for Back in Black. You know, you listen to that and you and you crank it up, and it's just like, oh my gosh, this sounds amazing. Well, do you know another um, thing ACDC does? Um is uh, the Young Brothers do not tell Phil Rudd and Cliff Williams about the songs until right before they go into the studio. So the bass player Cliff Williams and the drummer Phil Rudd, they hear the songs the day of or whatever, 
and the reason they do that to them, I know it's mean, is because they want those guys to be excited and to be wailing on their instruments when they hear the song for the first time. You know, if for those of you who've played in bands, the time when the song comes together and you have all that excitement, that puppy love for the song, and you are just excited versus the you're playing it the 300,000th time in the studio. Yeah. Um, but again, maybe that does that that technique works for that band. It may not work for your band, but here here they are, guys that you think, oh, they're dingies and they don't they talk about their craft and they work these things out. And for their band, that's how they but they have a plan for how they go into the studio. They don't just sure. this is my song, figure out your part and hope for the best. So yeah. I'm just, I say a lot because a lot of times bands come to us as studio owners. They come to us and ask us, how do I make it or how do I do this or how do I do that? And, you know, if anybody knew the answer, that would. But but one thing we do know is because we see so many bands, we know that it's very easy to be mediocre or worse and uh, to be that extra bit of excellence you know, just sitting down, it doesn't cost anything to sit down and just think about your craft and work with your colleagues and develop sure. a rapport. So I hope you guys have enjoyed part one of my interview with Garrett. Uh, we, it was a lot of fun getting to talk about just music and mastering and mixing and all the things that are involved in what we do. So there's a lot more great info coming up soon. So stay tuned.